Hello, this is an episode of the series of David Abbott podcasts I'm producing called David's Department, which is a kind of loose title to bring together people who worked for him in one way or another, kind of in the creative department. There's a little bit of um, outside the department input from at least Mike Griffin. But um, just to introduce it, it, it goes chronologically. We start with Brian Byfield, who um, was David's art director in the late 60s and early 70s and remained his friend for, um, well, the, the rest of his life, really. And then we go into John O'Driscoll, who worked for him in his department at DDB around the same kind of time. Then um, we hear from Kathy, Kathy Heng, who, as a junior creative worked for David at French Gold Abbott. So she has a, a slightly different perspective on how um, how David was as a boss. And then we speak to Mike Griffin, or we hear from Mike Griffin rather. And what's interesting about all these, in, <laughs> it wasn't a deliberate thing that I wanted to make sure we threaded together. But all of those people mention David had this bottom drawer trick. I'm not trying to make a point by repeating it and repeating it, but I think the fact that it keeps coming up. And from slightly different points of view, I mean, Kathy regards it in a somewhat benevolent way because she was quite junior. Then Griff tells us that it put off a few creatives work from working in um, David's department. So the reason that's in there every time isn't there were loads of other things and I just chose to always mention the bottom drawer. But every single one of those people, including Brian and including John Driscoll, um, mentioned this bottom drawer trick that David had, whereby if you're working on a, uh, a brief and David, um, what maybe he wasn't sure of your work, or he thought there was a better piece of work somewhere else that he had done. He magically had a great campaign for whatever brief anyone was working on, and often brought it out. Which, um, you know, on one side you want to give the client the best piece of work, on the other side, you know, you've got to keep your uh, department enthused. And if they think you're going to just go pop in at the last minute and go, ah, let's present my work instead. Um, Maybe it doesn't do it. But part of the point I was putting that in there for was to to mention that he was doing that at the beginning and then he kind of didn't do it later on in his career. And as Griff mentions, you know, maybe he kind of learned his lesson from that because uh, it did put some people off a little bit. Otherwise, what you'll um, hear are, you know, some minutiae stories of just how David worked either as a partner or as a boss or as a boss in his early stage or as a boss in the middle stage, a boss to a, a senior team, um, a progression of a boss, say, with uh, we, we hear from uh, Peter Souter as well, um, because Peter joined and then became uh, David's deputy, took over the department from him. So, you know, he, he went from uh, just joining to really having the mantle passed on to him um, so that, that was a very interesting, different perspective as well. Um, we have from John Kelly, too, um, who kind of joined Dave's apartment as a very senior creative with John O'Driscoll quite a lot. And then um, we have Paul Burke, who got some advice from David as a budding early copywriter. Um, didn't so much work for him really in a copywriting capacity, but but when he wanted to become a copywriter, David gave him some excellent advice. After Peter, we have Mary Weir, who worked for David in his latter years um, at AMV as a senior creative. 
you know, David hired him and uh, hired her, pardon me. And then um, there's a couple of interesting stories from Dave Dye, who joined again in David's later years, but also worked with David after he retired. So that, that's just the general picture of it all. Um, I, I, I'm going to just mention each one as we begin with them, just so you can know exactly who's speaking and what position and uh, they had in relation to, to David in that professional um, capacity. Um, and that, I think, overall is is kind of what we what we get as a picture of David as a working person. There's, there'll be another episode about Abbott Mead and how he was as an agency boss, and you know some specifics about certain campaigns. But this is really about David, the creative and kind of creative director. So um, I hope you enjoy it. This is Brian Byfield, David Abbott's. Uh, art director at DDB in the 60s and early 70s. Well, he was the sort of, he was very odd in, in a sense that everybody then sort of was like a slightly bohemian and long-haired and scruffy. You know, I mean, this is, I'm talking late 60s. And um, David was, of course, immaculate and um, very smartly dressed, looked like a sort of count man really with longish hair <laughs> but very good looking and very sort of smooth and articulate so but he was i mean a workaholic really he never stopped and ron brown and i always used to say years later when we had lunch um did you ever uh, we both ended up having eczema on our wrist we called it abaditis <laughs> because um, it was the pressure of working with David, you know, the long hours of through the night. And it was just unbelievable, really. So we, when I was working with him, we'd work all through the day on ads. And of course, he'd have to nip out to client meetings and do other things. And of course, as an art director, you end up doing a lot of the other stuff like doing the roughs and presentation, drawing, and God knows what, and the photography and artwork or whatever. And then he'd come back after the meetings and then we'd work to say eight at night. And then he'd say, do you want a quick bite to eat at my house in Blackheath? Because we were in Baker Street. So we'd drive down to Blackheath to his house. His wife would cook dinner, a sort of snack dinner. And then we'd work to two or three in the morning and I'd sleep on the couch. <laughs> and then we'd be in the next morning at eight. Wow. So it was pretty, pretty tiring. But it was, you know, the adrenaline kept you going and the excitement, of course. It yeah. was just fantastic. Well, was he managing director at this point as well or was he, was he not that? No, he was creative director. Okay. Creative director and then he was later, he, I think, became, but he was, yeah, creative director but, okay. um, he he had incredible amount of sort of uh, energy and sort of he, he never seemed to be tired but uh, i was but but i just you know we loved it we just just kept going with <laughs> I, I i don't think i've ever heard of anyone working hours like that even even recently i mean that's that's an incredible amount of Work to put it. No, we, I mean, it nearly kills you, you know. I mean, it didn't kill me, but I mean, I suddenly broke out in this rash, um, which was like nervous exhaustion. 
and the doctor told me, he said, he said you're just overworking. And I, I said, yeah, it's difficult, though, because we love it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it sort of calmed down, and I think I learned to pace myself a bit. But, but it was great. So it was sort of, I was there three years with him as his art director, and it was um, incredible. Um, yeah, great. And he, he was very, I mean, very encouraging. He got me to sort of start writing, as it were. You know, got me involved in the ideas and the ads. And so when I left to start my own agency, I, I felt I could write commercials and ads myself. You know. So it was very instructive. Um, and, and just from a dynamic point of view, so I've, I've been a writer and I, I know what it's like in a team. And, you know, maybe you're coming up with the ideas together and maybe the writer does the bit more at the beginning and yeah. the art director does a bit more at the end. Can, can you give well, us a bit of... Sometimes a bit of both, you know, yeah. the, the writer sometimes will come up with the visuals. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Can you give us yeah. a bit of a sense of what it was like, sort of, say, in the room? Was it, was it more David coming up with ideas at the beginning or was it you? Or how, how did that dynamic work between you? Well, it was... I think, I mean, it, it would be awful to say anything else, but David came up with the ideas for sure. And he he had a, even if we weren't doing them in the room, he sort of seemed to have a, a pile that one might say he prepared earlier, like a cookery program, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And he'd have loads in the drawer, you know, on the back burner. But I mean, he was very encouraging if I got involved in the ideas and, either the visual or the, the words or whatever, or a bit of both. But it, um, you know, he was obviously the driving force. I mean, no doubt about that. Um, but it was just, it, I learned a lot, of course. Um, and it sort of, yeah, changed my life, really. <laughs> it was just wonderful. And, and so I guess you were there at the sort of, the, when the, the the words were first coming out from David, so you were the first person you got to read his copy, and so what what would that experience be like? Well, it was great because he was very impressive. Because, like, say, if we did a Volkswagen ad, and and there'd be about I don't know if what it is, but say, hundred and fifty words of copy, or maybe two hundred of three columns at the bottom, and then if I was doing the typography for the bottom bit or we were setting it up, I'd say, God, it, could you cut a word out or add a word or do this or do that? And he'd do it at the drop of a hat, you know, just unbelievable. His mind and brain works so fast, he could just adjust it and it still seemed as good. So he was very uh, always aware of how visually it looked. So he could always say, oh, don't worry, I'll come. I'll add two words or blah, blah, blah. Wow. Um, so that was very nice. Yeah. But most of the ads are in the annual. I mean, all the ads we did together in the 1970 Dada annual, 71, I think. We did, I mean, at one year we had about 37 ads in there, the wow. two of us. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it was great, and in that, those books that Mark Antonio did, you know the uh, Volkswagen books, you've presumably seen those. I have, yeah. Remember those great VW ads? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, there were no credits on them, um, which was quite annoying, really, because <laughs> I had about thirty-five ads in that book, 
Um, but I, I did the Marty Feldman one and the the car, you know, the A to B with the tires and the man in the showroom, all, all those ones. I, in fact, I forget them. There were so many, I can't even remember them all. Um, but I have a record somewhere. <laughs> well, it might be interesting to... So say the Marty Feldman one, for example. So say... I mean, from what you said, was was that David's idea, and did he know how he wanted it shot, and did he talk about how that should be? And no, it, it was his. It was his idea. No, he left it to me. The shot, uh, the photographer was. Um, I think it was Tony May. I think, um, and I just we went there to his studio, and I just said, "Go right in close, or make him look as terrible as possible." <laughs> um, and of course, Martin Feldman had a wandering eye. You know, he he looked very strange. And uh, I just made it, you know, so it was as tight as I could get it, really, um, without spoiling his hair. You know, you didn't want it too tight where you couldn't see his hair. But um, no, David left the visual thing mostly to me. I mean, sometimes he'd come up with an idea, and he was very good with visuals anyway. Um, and sometimes I'd come in and chip in with a line or a word or whatever, but it was, I have, you know, he was the driving force always. Right. And so when you, when you brought, say the shots back, did it, did it feel like you were showing your creative director or just showing your copywriter as a, Oh, look, this, this shot's turned out very well. How was, how was that? Was he approving it or not? Yeah. Well, no, I mean, he usually just let, let us, I think, he always said that he was very lucky that he worked with three good art directors, Neil Godfrey, um, myself, and then Ron Brown. And I think all of us in our different ways could do, we knew what to do. We could all draw and we were all designer trained and art school trained. You know, we knew what we were doing visually and we all were keen on photography and God knows what. And we could all draw. So we had a feeling for how things should look. <laughs> and he, he always mentioned that in articles, that I was lucky that all my art directors could draw. <laughs> um, and um, so he, he did let us get on with it, I think. But there was always a sort of, it was always a joint thing of, you know, how the ad's going to be, the two of us, you know, that we, this was our ad. He, right. And he always was even if he was the driving force and came up with more ideas, he was very inclusive. You know, he made you feel very much a part of it. Right. And, and being at DDB... very nice. Sure. And, and being at DDB at that time, and, and obviously he'd, he'd been to the New York office and you were working on DDB's flagship, um, you know, historically amazing account, uh, VW. Did that feel like there was a not a pressure, but a kind of, uh, uh, you know, you're, you're being passed the golden baton from the greatest advertising creative director in the world at that point. Did, did that feel oh, yes. like a pressure? It did. Yeah, not, I didn't feel then. I, I sort of relaxed into the job in the end. I was very relaxed about it all. It was just happy days as far as I was concerned. It was really nice. I was lucky, really. I think I always knew how to handle him <laughs> and maybe I was more sycophantic than some I don't know but um, 
some people really had trouble and he used to get very angry and what people said the David Abbott white lip sort of look where you knew your days were numbered and you could be very sort of you know not cold but very tough but he always he didn't like firing people so it always came down to me having to fire them <laughs> if it was an outbreak but um no, he, he could be yeah, very demanding and very tough, but if, if you were fine with him and you did your work, you know, and he felt you would, I mean, he wanted total loyalty and commitment. I mean, he just didn't want anything less than the best, really. So we just got on with it. So it was always fine, but there were sometimes no names mentioned where art directors or writers didn't come up to scratch. And they were quickly moved aside but so he wasn't I mean to me he was always like Mr. Charming, Mr. Fun Mr. Perfect but of course like all these things it could never be quite like that because of egos and reputations but um, I didn't see personally anything or we didn't have any falling outs really I mean disagreements obviously but that was just in the cut and thrust and banter of art director writer stuff but nothing one would worry about because I'd rather not mention names sure. but there was one, one story where an art director and writer went off somewhere abroad in Europe to do a photographic shoot and they were there two weeks and came back with absolutely nothing and um, the, the photographer was a, an American photographer who was pretty sort of up the wall, you know, pretty odd. And uh, um, David was absolutely furious, you know, because the excuses for not coming back with even one picture. So it put the account in jeopardy. So they, they quit, well, the art director went very quickly <laughs> um, because he just thought it was, you know, outrageous that they just didn't give us any warning, just stayed there for two weeks and not one shot was taken and the excuses were rather vague and not very believable. But so, I mean, that would never happen today, would it? That sort of thing. No one, would be, given, no one would be given two weeks to, to shoot. In fact, no one would get a, a photo shoot, number one. <laughs> no one would be given two weeks no, to no. go abroad. I mean, it was amazing. It, it was, it, one has to remember it was the 60s. <laughs> it was quite amazing. Anyway, there were... Whenever there was anything like that, it was usually he was, if, if he got angry, it was because there was a good reason, really, I thought. This is John O'Driscoll, who worked for David at DDB during the 60s, and um, I believe worked from later on, but this is about his time uh, under David at DDB. David took over the Volkswagen campaign from an American art director called Arthur Taylor at Dawson Yeoman. And they, what they'd done, they hadn't done v, VW ads. Right. And Bill Burbank came over to see it. And David, in, in, actually not in the, in, uh, the uh, film we made this, our story, he said, he, David said, well, was brave to say, okay, do it your way. And, mm. you know, and he said he always felt a bit, he said, but I, either way, he said, I came out unstuck because in the end, Bill Birkenbeck did come over and say, you're not doing this work. <laughs> I'll do it our way. 
So David did actually give give them the opportunity. And they weren't very good ads, actually. I mean, they were very strong looking because the art director came from, D, from uh, DDB New York and worked for a man called Bert Steinhauser, who was an astonishing, you know, if you Google his name, you know, some of the old stuff he did, you know, graphically anyway, very strong. And, um, um, and, and so, but he was always nice. He'd come in and tell you what. The trouble is with David, it was what they called the fourth draw. It's an old story about it. Whatever you were doing, you always had an ad ready. You know, you 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 know, you you do the campaign, and all of a sudden he'd go. I was thinking about it the other day, and he opened up a drawer and bring out that ad that's better than yours. You know, was that uh, um, I hesitate to say annoying, but was it was it? Uh, well, it didn't. I mean, it used to impress me because you know, <laughs> I used to go. It's it, it's sat in an office, but you know. Weeks. I mean, we used to sit. We honestly, we used to take weeks over doing an ad. Right. And <laughs> it's un, there's no comparison to what it is now. And um, and he would, uh, he did. I tell you, there's one very nice thing actually. He did do. Uh, I, um, him and Brian worked on Volkswagen ads, and we all we all did them. And we it was a two uh, David and uh, Brian and uh, David Brown. You heard of David Brown? Yes. Yeah. Brownie, brilliant um, writer, um, and very funny, and um, but quite you know, sort of dry as toast. And so we we did ads, and we did them up as whole pages, and we you know we did them, and we presented. We uh, we were all invited to the presentation in at DDB, and what David did, he pinned. It must have been about maybe twelve ads. Um, pinned up on the wall, and he covered them over with the layout pad, A4, A3 paint, and all, all drawn up. And you know, and David presented, and oh, yeah, and introducing the important part of the story is as the the, the, the boss of Volkswagen in UK was a man called Alan Dix. He was a, a, a Dane. He was a Dane warhead. He, he had a finger missing. He was shot off by a German bullet. You know, wow. But in a place like that, he worked for Mark Antonio. Mark Antonio worked for him. He, he was a big, you know, he was a big, strong boy. And, he, and um, we presented the ads and he went and, and said, well, Alan, what do you think? You know, well, David, it's clear to me, he said, two, uh, two sets of people have done these ads. And he, he knew there was another team in the room. He said, one set did that set over there and one set did this set over here. He said, I would fire, he said it gently, I think you should think about firing the people who did those ads. <laughs> and you know what David said? Yeah. Well, I better resign then. <laughs> right. It wasn't quite true, but it was enough to say I did that ad you don't like as well. We got the ads through and the guy laughed. He was lovely, he was charming David, you know, all that. And, you know, it, it was sort of quite good. And, and I also remember at the time, the client, he, he said, uh, what's your name again? I said, oh, John O'Driscoll. You look like Georgie Best. <laughs> oh, I said, oh, thank you. He said, do you get girls like him? <laughs> <laughs> but they were, you know, he was, he was, he, he'd always knock them out. And you just, but the, everything was always, um, and do you know what, actually, my memory of Abbott Mead, you know, when it was in, um, more in the first one, not the first one, 
Milbert's uh, Abrick Street for your time. Right. It, it, he, he was so pow- his work was so powerful. I sometimes wonder whether it was intimidating. You know, he always seemed to do the best work. This is Kathy Heng, who worked for David as a junior creative at French Gold Abbott in the seventies. So he had an urgent brief come in, and um, he would um, set probably a couple of it's urgent. He'll set a couple of teams working on it. You know, so we were all kind of like quite young teams. Worked on it. We would sit up. If you knew that the brief, uh, the actual presentation would be like the next day, you had a bit of time. But you know, when it was a, you know coming up to the sort of the deadline, we would all be staying up till about midnight, crashing and trying to put this work together, storyboarding, art, you know, doing layouts on pads and everything else, get it all ready for the next day. You get this, you, you sort of wait to be called. And when you got called in, you'd shown this work, you know, team, you know, there's two teams, it'd be one team first and then us. And then uh, I was working with Johnny Clive at the time. And, um, and then you'd show it to him and you'll go, yeah, yeah, that's great, that's great. No, that's it. You could do this, you could do that, you could change this or change that. Then he'd call us all in, you know, the two teams, and then you'd say, well, I've, you know what? I've been thinking about this as well last night, uh, in the week. I've been thinking about this brief. And uh, look, I've got to show you something. And he pulls his drawer out, right? Out came, came sort of pile of A3 layout paper, right? A stack of it, you know. I mean, honestly, it was a stack. And we were all kind of, our jaws dropped. And he'd go through it and he'd say, look, look at this. And he'd show us each ad, each one, each, say there's six campaigns, he would do six campaigns. And he'd go, each one is in entirety, storyboarded and, you know, press ads all together with a strap line that is absolutely perfect for that idea. And you just go through it. And we would just sit there and thinking, what are we doing? Every single one is perfect. You know, you could run anyone and it would be great. You know, you answered the brief so simply, so wonderfully. And we thought, oh shit, he's gonna fire us. This is not great. Oh, anyway, no, he put up with this. I think that that's the way he used to work a bit, actually. It was very much like that. He was always so worried about the client more than this, not not, not the team so much. He realised that we're all learning and whatever from him. But at the same time, he would sort of make sure that he always went in with the best work. And that's what he was like. And in the agency, I don't know, I might Griffin will remember this. We would um, thought, We've got to learn from him. He's so amazing. We've just got to learn from him. So we had this sort of two-way mirror, I remember, two-way mirror um, into this conference room because it was like a, the recorded stuff. Yeah. There might even groups there. I don't know quite what happened at that time, but we would stand behind this two-way mirror so he presents to clients. And the client's jaws just kind of like the mouth is wide open when he presents the work because he's got it absolutely nailed completely to the point where they just think, well, we bought, yes, we're buying this, you know? And um, it was just incredible. And then you sort of, over the period of time, you keep thinking, my God, 
He used to do the account man's job. Mm. He used to do the planner's job. And he does the creative job. And he actually does it all himself. It was just incredible. And he got so much to learn from this man. You're just in awe of him all the time, you know, because he's just unbelievable, really. You know, he's, a sort of, he's got this charm and he's a true gentleman. He's very stylish and he... When he strolls into the room, I can always imagine that everybody's eyes are on him. I mean, they, you just don't come off David when he talks. That's it. You know, you're mesmerized by this man. And uh, he was always like that, you know. And I find him sort of, he's almost sort of classy in every way, you know. His clothes, his food, his cars, his, you know, whatever he, he does, you think... God, I, I, you know, it's just amazing. It's so inspirational. <laughs> you know, you're sort of thinking, God, is, is there anything he can't do? You know, it's amazing. He, he was just incredible. He was incredible. And uh, what else was I going to say about FGA? Let me see. If I... Do you remember um, the first time you met him? Do you remember that interview or that experience? What was that like? Well, you just sit down, just petrified when I speak to him. <laughs> but had he called you up and said, oh, I really like your work, come on in for an interview and be in my agency? Yeah, I, I think it was, was it, was it through Kenna Kendall that the job came through? All right. So that's how I went to see him. And um, so it was, it was through a headhunter, you know, and I went in there. And then after that, I just got a call to say that I've got the job, which is brilliant. Mm. I just couldn't believe it, you know. It, it, yes, you, I can't remember what he asked, but I'm sure he went through my portfolio anyway. He obviously did ask me a lot of questions. Yeah. And um, I think he's constantly watching to see whether you're going to be a fit for him, you know. You know, he likes classy stuff. I mean, working with him was amazing, actually. The other thing I learned from him is craft because he's, he's really, his he's eye for things and he, when he copyrights, everything has to be perfect. And I remember he, the, the way he, he likes it is that you, you must, your eye's got to tra be trained to look from one sentence and you virtually, by the time you get to the end of that line, you can't wait to get to the next line and so on. That's how he used to write. And in those days, I mean, the FGA days, I mean, really, we used to set type. I mean, it's not like computers, right? You can just type in anything and there you go. You don't even kern anything that much. Yeah. Those days, you really literally kern every letter. And he was so particular about that. So when I worked with him on an ad, he'd say, Kathy, can you just go away and just honestly set whatever you want Go for go for it. Eight type fonts, you know. And at that time, it was. I mean, I think at that time it was like a pound a word or something ridiculous like that. You know, it was really really expensive. You know, when you set type, and it was it's film set, so it obviously comes in strips, right? And everything goes overnight, so you have to get it ready. And I remember going on those bloody machines that you have to keep tracing type to make sure you've got the right size for the ad, and you'd be able to sort of roughly guess what size it is. And he would stay up with me, and actually, with Joe Hoser. Do you remember Joe mm, Hoser? Yeah, sure. Oh my God, he'd stay up with me and Joe till midnight, literally crafting this ad. 
and he'd say to me, it doesn't matter, whatever you, just let me know every line break. Just let me know if you want a, a letter out of there or a word or two words or whatever on every line. You can just tell me and I'll craft it because he wants it to sit perfectly. And literally, I'd say that line, one character out, that line, I need two words out. <laughs> you know, I was literally getting my pencil out and actually saying, I want this out, I want that. And he, he would sit there and rewrite the copy so it would fit absolutely perfectly. That's his craft. It's just incredible. He was so interested in the whole layout, the look, the feel and everything. You know, that's what he was like. Um, so yeah, we would stay up with him all night just doing this, and he's very happy to do that, just to make sure it was perfect. And so and from there, I really learned how to, to, you know, set the line. But now, you know, it doesn't nobody's learning that now. Maybe it doesn't really matter. I, I probably doesn't matter, but it's quite different. But that that, that principle never leaves you. Anyway, the way he, he he looks at lines, the way he sets. And, and have people read it from line to line. I, I think they ever, ever left me. I mean, it'll always stay with me because I'll be thinking, how would I do this one? Yeah. <laughs> this is Mike Griffin, who uh, wasn't a creative under David, but uh, worked for him in various capacities from French Gold Abbott and Abbey Vickers, generally in production, first print production, and then uh, TV production. If there's one thing about David that was maybe goes against him slightly was that as a creative director, having worked under Peter Mayle uh, for a brief period at BBDO, Peter Mayle was a better creative director. In what way? In what way was that he would let you, he would advise you where you were going wrong and then you go away and work it out for yourself. Right. Whereas, whereas David was a much better writer than what he was one of the best writers I think we've ever known in this country. Um, with David, and this is a very good example, is that uh, John Horton and Richard Foster, uh, sorry, John Horton and John Kelly had, had worked on the pitch for Hepworth Taylor and they'd come up with the ideas and everything and won the account. And it was all posters and, and stuff in the, you know, double page spreads in the Radio Times, all colour. And like, you know, and it was big, you know, nationwide poster campaign, really big stuff. And I think we did, they did two campaigns a year, spring and autumn. And I think we wanted to do the spring campaign, then did the autumn campaign. Oh, that's right. When it came round to the, ne the, the, the next spring campaign, they were all working on it, uh, John and, and John, John Kelly and John Horton. And they've gone in to see David, and David didn't really like what they'd done, or I don't know for sure, but instead of maybe saying, well, look, this is what I don't like about it, now go back and do it, David would... It was called the bottom drawer trick. And he would pull out the bottom drawer and say, well, I've actually, I've done some stuff myself. And because that goes down, don't go, you know, when you're talking to people who are at the top of their talent, you don't do that to those sort of people. It's like saying, a, you know, 
it's like telling well, not Aubameyang, it's, it's like telling Saka, look, this is how I want you to play football, but look, but look at how I do it. And you go, what? Yeah. 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 Um, and so, and he did not, he didn't do it just once. He did it quite a few times to people. And that was the thing, at French Gold Abbott, with some of the best, best creatives in London, and, the, and over a period of like 18 months, they all left. But mm. we did get other people in. Ron left, um, John and John left, Bob Wilson left, um, I can't remember his writer's name, he left. Um, because David had this bloody bottom drawer thing. So, he, um, and I think that didn't help with the agent, that once we'd merged in with Kenny Eckhart, he was letting he, he he wasn't putting a stamp on the department. He was letting people do exactly, I think, what they not what they wanted, but they got on with it themselves. He he didn't really go in there and say, right, I think this is you should do this or you should do that. I mean, I never worked at CDP, but um, what was his name, Colin? Oh, crumbs. Colin Millwood. Colin Millwood, you know, you know, and go, you're right, I don't like this, go away and do it, you know, it would give it, it would tell you how to do it, and then you go away and reform it. Um, David would never do that, or do you just pull it through the bottom drawer trick, or let you just get on. Um, but at Abermead Vickers, I think he actually became a better creative director. Um, but I don't, I don't, I didn't see any much, I didn't see much of the bottom drawer stuff happening at, at Abbott Mead because maybe he'd learned a bit by that. This is John Kelly, who worked for David at various different points, uh, often with John O'Driscoll, but then they split up. But John O'Kelly worked at Abbott Mead Vickers through most of the 1980s and into the 90s. Abbott Mead has had a reputation for being wonderful press agency, but um, their their TV work um, wasn't particularly strong at that time, and um, I think that's one one of the reasons why I think David was interested in in hiring me be, uh, and, and John because we built up quite a strong reputation at CDP for you know for doing for, for doing television work. So when I when I presented TV scripts to him, he he most of the time. He, you know, he pretty much kind of trusted, you know, that that um, they were going to they were going to be all right. I mean, I, I I'm just trying to recall. I can't recall him ever, you know, physically sort of turning down a TV script and saying, oh, that that's the rubbish. I don't think that's." Gonna <laughs> he just didn't. Um, he, I mean, more more on press, and I think you know that's because press was very much his comfort zone. Um, and again, I think he 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 would sometimes suggest. A different tweak on a headline, um, and sometimes he would just just to say that and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that that, um, you know, that's going to work. And obviously, you know, you 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 know, you accepted his judgment, um, but um, um, it was different from 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 Peter Mail. As I said, I don't know what it is. What, I can't even sort of articulate it really, but articulate. It. But Peter Peter was much more, um, you know, verbose about what he would say, what he would thought was 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 a. Uh, wrong with something and, and how it could be better and again you know you, you as I said you felt you were 
you were being done a big favor because something better was going to come out of it actually um so as david i mean i don't know what he was like you know with other people as i say I, my my situation was um was that I, that he that he had, you know appreciated my strengths and john's strengths in in doing tv and i think he tended to kind of trust us with it really right um and so which years were the uh, post uh, Gears Gross years that you were at AMV? When, when was that? I came back. Um, well, I, I, I joined. I joined French. I joined Abbott Mead in eighty two. Um, left eighteen months later, 80, the end of eighty three, and then I came back in eighty five. So I was I was there from eighty five until I left in ninety three. So I was, I was there, um, yeah, eight, eight years, eight years. And, and so were you in a creative director, what, what was the dynamic like between you in terms of your presumably very senior position there and his equally or further senior position? Um, he, uh, when, I, when I first went back, he was very much creative director and it was a kind of, um, um, a, a level a level creative depart department. I mean, everyone basically um, worked to David and he approved everything that um, was being done in the department. People showed their work to him. Um, when, when it got a bit bigger, um, we were then uh, divided into groups and I, I became a, a group head. Uh, we, I think there were three or four groups um, I can't remember now, um, and, and David um, still had final say, but but um, the uh, you know the initial kind of creative directoring was done at the group level, and I think that was partly because you know it was we were we were growing quite rapidly, and um, I think David you know really wanted to um, uh, delegate more more works to um, to, to to senior creative. Staff because he wanted, I guess, to still you know still spend time writing. I mean, I think that that was really David's real passion was was you know physically doing the work actually, um, and uh, you know I, I wouldn't say he was a reluctant creative director because he obviously wasn't you know and he, he was he was a you know um, uh, a, 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 a good a good leader. But I think his 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 passion really was was actually physically doing work. I and mean, a lot of creative directors don't you know don't. Cause basically, because they don't don't have time, I guess. I mean, John Salmon, in the days that I worked at CDP, he never he never wrote anything. Pete, Peter did a bit, but um, David didn't. But I mean, uh, sorry, John didn't. John was very much, um, you know, a kind of um, a, a creative kind of um, editor, really, rather than a, a doer. Whereas I think David David never stopped being a doer. I think he loved writing. He loved words, and he loved you know he loved he, he was passionate about ads and. Uh, that's that's where um, that's where his real strength lie, I think. And so, but when you were in uh, in charge of a group, did you were you able to approve work yourself then, or did it then have to go to David for a further level of approval? Um, sometimes it did. I mean, it did. Uh, again, it changed over time because um, um, <laughs> the, the volume of work that was going through was 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 getting bigger all the time so there would there would be times when you know um we, we would show work to david and there are times when um 
when I think he was happy for you know for it to be delegated to uh, to the to the creative directors, the you know the the, the creative group heads. I think we I think we were called creative directors. I can't remember now. <laughs> um, but um, um, I don't think I don't think um, you know he felt that he had to have a kind of iron hand on everything that's going on because he had good people that he trusted. I mean, John and Richard yeah. he trusted um, uh, myself. Um, Andy Argru, um, they were they were good, you know, good, solid people there that he trusted. Um, Mark, uh, Rolf, and um, Bob, uh, Rob Campbell um, also had a group. But well, they were in my group to start with, and they they got a group of, of their own as it as it got bigger. Um, so I think you know the, the dynamic kind of changed with the kind of um, the way that the, the agency was evolving and the, and the and the amount of work that was being done. I mean, it was it, it was a very rapid. You know, kind of increase um, from you know, as I say, it was fifty people when I when I joined, and um, um, it got very big very quickly actually. Yeah, it must have been very interesting. So, um, I mean, obviously you had this professional relationship with him, but w- but working in AMV for those eight years, I mean, there must have been a relationship. I'm not saying I don't know if you please let me know if you guys were, were big tennis buddies or something like that. But d- did you see him? Aside from outside of work, or a personal side of him that was kind of different to the professional side, not we we, we didn't socialise um, personally. I mean, you know, family wise, um, I did I did very much with Peter Funk, Peter Mead. I mean, Peter um, and I had quite a lot in common in, in, in various ways, and, and um, he his family and my family did, did used to socialise. Um, but um, not 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 with David in, in, in so much in that sense. But, but I mean, there was a lot of social stuff that went on, um, you know, within the agency. David David was um, was very good at um, you know just coming out of his office one day and saying, "Well, let's all go for lunch." And you know, he he would organise um, uh, uh, lunches and um, and drinks and things for people, you know, to kind of get together. Um, and um, uh, he um, he was he was very um, a very sociable person in that sense. Um, I mean, he, he was he was quite a quite a kind of complex character in a, in a, in a funny kind of way. Because on the one hand, he was very social, but on but on the other hand, um, he he could be quite some you know. Um, not not distance exactly, but I mean I think if he you know if, if he felt he wanted his own space or his own time, you know um, you, you would know when that was the case. Do you know what I mean? This is Paul Burke, who worked at Abermead Vickers as a kind of runner um, before he became a creative, but was able to talk to David about what it was like and what he should look out for in becoming a copywriter himself. I started bothering David. Um... And he, he was always very good, just very kind, always had time for you. And he gave me, you know, lots of advice uh, if I wanted to be a copywriter. Can you remember uh, any any of it specifically? Uh, one of it was um, he, he finds that he, uh, do all your research first, do, do too much research, have too much to say. He said, like, get, getting all your ingredients out first. So you're cooking a meal, yeah. get everything, you know, you get everything out, get it ready. Just get it out of the cupboard, get it out of the fridge. Um, in the same way, do, uh, do that with all the information you need. Have too much. And uh, don't 
be halfway so that when you can start like when you start cooking your dish uh, everything's there and you don't have to stop and that's boiling and you're looking for something else his other thing was um uh keep it simple um words are like pound notes don't waste them um try and refer back try and tie something up he said some people find it i do adrian holmes does as well finds it um, the best way is to excuse me write write you write your beginning and then have your end in line, sort of know where it's going to end up and then fill in the bit in the middle. Uh, now, he was really good. And what I used to do before I even let on that I might like to be a copywriter, um, part of my job, again, was putting all the proofs and used to... Because there, no, there was no internet. So you, you'd, um, you'd do a Volvo ad or a Sainsbury's ad. They would make that. And you would... I'd order 50 proofs from the printers, you know, and they all had to be filed downstairs. And I would read them. And I, I, I was fascinated by them. I was fascinated by that style, um, that compression of thought, the way that one sentence should lead to another. Uh, and it had to be engaging and it had to be persuasive because the basic premise of any piece of copywriting, any piece of advertising is to try to make you do something or buy something, or, you know. And, and so there was always... Um, that, that was what was behind it. And I used to love the way I, I, the reader, would be seduced into reading the copy for Sainsbury's or for um, for Volvo. And I just thought I'd love to be able to do it like that. And Abbott's is the style that I tried, and, and Richard's, Richard Foster's, to, um, to emulate. I still do, because uh, it was so simple. Uh, but simple and easy are two different things. And there, there is that old... Because I went uh, years later... I'm on Radio 4 because I've become very grand. <laughs> Talking about one of my books, I was on Woman's Hour and Martha Carney said to me, oh, I love your books. It's such an easy read. And I said, oh, don't you start with your easy read. Can't you say it's a challenging intellectual masterpiece? And she goes, let me tell you, there's a saying I always, um, I always think of. She said, easy reading, hard writing. And if I could sum up the way David Abbott and the very best copywriters write. It's easy reading, hard writing. Because sometimes you're wading your way through some complex, usually a brief, you know, written by some nitwit. And you just think you haven't worked hard enough. I don't mean dumbing it down, but you haven't worked hard enough to, to, to make this easy to read. And Abbott and, and, and the very best copywriters always did. So that's what I tried to do. And it was Abbott who took me on my very first radio recording because I'd shown an interest in it. This is Peter Souter, who um, joined Abbott Mead Vickers as a senior creative in the early 90s and then took over running Abbott Mead Vickers department from David in the mid to late 90s and uh, continued to run that department well into the 2000s. He was great on the first day. He was classy and kind. I mean, you know, the the fun bit about him was he, he was quite naughty. So he knew that I was desperate to be brilliant um, from the start. And so he gave me a Sainsbury's bread ad to do on the first day. And by the end of the first day, I mean, you know, this is a time when you used to get three weeks to do a press ad. But on that first day, he gave us quite a strict deadline. And now I think, you know, I used to think, oh, he was being cruel. Now I think what a brilliant thing to do. You know, he allowed us to come and say hello to him at the end of the day and show him a piece of work, which is a really kind and thoughtful way of making you feel part of the family. Um, He didn't let us uh, stew in our own juice. You know, we got straight to work. Um, I wrote a, uh, if memory serves, I wrote a line which was, it was like a 
you know, money off offer. And it was uh, Sainsbury's present uh, white bread at a price you think is brown bread. Do you hear me doing that? Sainsbury's present, trying to be David nice. yeah. And, uh, you know, so I did Cockney Rhyming Slam, fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, again, I can't remember exactly how you phrased it, but it was something like, um, you know, I've seen your work, Peter, and I know you can do much better. I've got a feeling the phrase was nowhere to be seen, actually. <laughs> it was like a conversation I had on my own. He's so smart, he probably thought, yeah, Pete, why don't you go and show him that? Yeah. <laughs> Um, but again, you know, he blew out this ad and I walked out there feeling 10 feet tall because they kind of think I can do better. And, you know, if you ever wanted a, uh, a one-sentence lesson in how to be uh, a good, um, not even a creative director, a, a good human being and a good leader of other people, make people feel great about their failures, you know, make them feel that they can do anything. Um, so, you know, that's a, it's a day one story, but it's not a bad day one story for a number of reasons, right? Uh, yeah. he knew enough to settle us down he knew we'd be frightened so one of the ways to get over your fear is to do something he knew that we wouldn't need, you know we shouldn't have too much time to sit around so it was very short deadline and a days from long deadlines and then he was kind to me when I was an idiot you know I think that's I think that's a bunch of classy things isn't it that is that's great um, and he entertained himself, you know. Yeah. I mean, I think it's not important for it not to be too much biography. He was—he could be cruel. <laughs> His jokes could be cruel, and he thought it was funny to make me jump through a few hoops. <laughs> let's get let's get it out of the way. As you said, he was tall and broad and good-looking. Uh, he was witty and clever. He was a brilliant copywriter, obviously, but also, you know, amazing account person razor sharp planner you know good pretty good fucking stand-up comedian and he would walk around and he would just be ever so slightly larger than i never i never really liked this sort of god nickname because i don't think it does him justice <laughs> I, think, I think god can be cruel and my memory of him is that although he could be he could be witty and a bit scathing sometimes if he did something stupid i think he was an incredibly benign uh, person but yeah I thought I just thought we had better things to do you know people think that we had an amazingly close you know um some people say like a father and nobody says that anymore <laughs> but in those days like father and son thing it's not true you know he had perfectly good sons of his own um and I always thought that he was just busy and you know bothered and you, you I, I love your sweet uh Christmas party story but if you think about you multiplied by 350 yeah, yeah. people you know, imagine what his party was like, you know, and, and I think that my inclination was I wasn't frightened of him, but I wasn't absolutely in awe. And I just wanted some of that magic just to rub off on me, you know, just if I stood nearby, maybe something good would happen. Um, and I think that in that, I'm the same as you and the same as, you know, Paul and Richard and all these other people, you know, I don't feel unique in that respect at all. I mean, he grew a shield. Mm. Right. I mean, like his hair, I don't think it was a coincidence. He had, <laughs> well, you know, he's my great hero, but he did essentially have a bowl cut. You know, he had yeah. a very expensive bowl cut. But he was, um, do you remember uh, his leaving, no, it wouldn't have been leaving speech. One, one of the you know, many fantastic speeches he gave, but he said he encouraged people to say hello to him in the lift. He said, I'm not intimidating, I'm shy. Oh, right, okay. You know, and, and I think that that was a... Uh, you know, a bit of a clue. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that we were supposed to take him seriously, really. I mean, imagine again. Imagine if you couldn't get in the lift without yeah. being spoken to. I mean, you know, if you're, I've become very interested in um, 
you know, stuff like Myers-Briggs, like type indicators how people like to receive the world. And he was undoubtedly an introvert, you know, which is a weird thing to say for a man who could command a room with, you know, mm. 500 people in it. Um, uh, and what, he was a, I think, a bit of a show-off. <laughs> I mean, why would you why would you bother being that brilliant if you didn't want people to know, you know? But I think if you were, if you were interested in his human characteristics, and he was an introvert. And therefore, he grew the kind of extrovert muscles to be able to make a speech and, and, you know, win a pitch and tell people what to do. Imagine what it was like to be the person who couldn't work anywhere without going, people going, oh, there's David Allen. You know, and, and, and that'd be people that work for him. People saw him every day. I, I thought there's David Allen every day of my life, you know, when I worked for him. Basically, you can make work in heat or light, right? right. I mean, of course, the Colin Award way of doing things works. You can you can frighten, intimidate, and have people take responsibility. You know those things. You can make an argument for it, but you can also do it by creating you know, flowers growing in the sunshine. You can create an environment where people think, like like the example I've given you already. You know, um, you can turn down work and make people long to do better. You know, not turn down work and think, shit. If I don't come back with something better, I'm going to get fired. You know, both things work. Just one is evil and the other's not. You know, and and I, it's interesting. You, you know, gosh, I mean, there, a lot of them are still around. But if you meet CDP people, they're often very, very damaged human beings. You know, they've, they've grown up in that uh, environment where people could say any fucking vile thing they liked to yeah, each other yeah. and call it a joke. Yeah. And yes, it is funny, but then you meet them in their 50s and 60s and they're wrecks, you know. And so <laughs> I'm not a fan of the uh, you work out. See you next Tuesday. You know, I, 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 um, and that was not David's way. I mean, he was demanding, but here's the thing, you know, Ben, you, you, you know this, but for, for the sake of the, let's imagine a 22 year old listener who actually wants to know about their business. Um, uh, the way that David encouraged you to do better work was to do better work than you ever imagined that you could do in an office. 10 yards away, right? I mean, if you didn't solve the brief, he could. If you didn't solve the brief, he'd do something better, you know? And it was just your responsibilities you were getting paid to make sure that he didn't have to do all the bloody work. You know, the, the, um, one of the things that I try to do with, you know, modest success here and there is take a problem off his shoulders, you know? And so to me, he didn't need to say, this ad is shit. He did laugh at something I showed him once, not in the way I was. <laughs> but it was kind of, you know, I, I tried to sing him a song. <laughs> I brought in a musical thing and he just said, he went, Peter, do you mind if I read it? <laughs> but again, you know, I mean, what a, what a lovely way to say, don't do that, yeah. fool boy. <laughs> um so, you know, to your point, it's, and it's a really interesting thing that you're raising, Ben, because it is, it's become very fashionable to say there's only one way of doing things, and of course there isn't. You know, it, I think it's preferable to try, and, to try and manage the human being and hope that the work that results is the best that it can be, as opposed to trying to crush the human being to see if any creativity spills out of the juice that's left over. You know, and, and, you, and, and all points in between, you know. I was never wanted to be part of the Saatchi culture, but I understand that they, you know, that they created brilliant work in an environment of, um, well, let's not say anymore. Let's not say anymore. The other thing, the important thing to remember about David is that, you know, 
for a while there it was my job to replace him and it wasn't possible right i'm not yeah. as good as he was i'm not as talented as he was i'm not as kind as he was i wasn't as old as he was and i hope that somewhere in there a bit of maturity you know would, would kick in but too too late for you it seems well <laughs> but, yeah um, but that's the point that it's not possible I mean, it's really interesting to be asked, you know, asked to think about this because I was thinking about it the last couple of days. And, you know, what's happened is, um, you know, it wasn't possible to re replace David Lambert. I wasn't nearly good enough. But what's interesting, the only consolation for me is neither was anyone else. You know, you can make a case maybe for Dave Droger, but what's happened is that, um, that people like David had to re be replaced by organisms, you know, they had to be like multi, it took, it took you and Ben and Richard and John and Dave Dye and all of these people, obviously Tom Walter, you know, it took a tremendous amount of people to try to fill the space left by one person. Can you think of a single creative leader now who creates all of the campaigns, who does, uh, you know, who starts everything? Well, that's the real answer to your question, is that he would inspire you to try and do your best work by doing much better. Yeah. <laughs> you think, well, if I'm allowed to stay here, you know, I, I, you know, I, uh, I'd like to apologise down the decades for, for that. But I had that feeling all the time that I had to do something good to be allowed to stay. Nobody ever threatened me with a sack ever, but I threatened myself every day, pretty much. You know, again, John Hegarty, who I think... What a fantastic man. But his uh, rather scary-ass thing, an ad a day keeps the sack away. Yeah. Although I didn't work at BBH because of that sentence. I carried, you know, carried it around yeah. at A and B because you thought you need to, you know, and I know you felt the same, you need to earn your right to stay. I think you have to be very careful not to rewrite your history so that it makes you look good. But we did win four pencils in three years, and in the you know in the days when to win more than one pencil in the career was quite impressive. Yeah. As opposed to now, when you get them if you buy like you know three packets of cereal. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, I mean, it helped. I I didn't feel comfortable at AMV until I'd won a prize. I mean, I remember sitting. We were on the top floor, which was a bit unusual. We were the youngest by about a decade. Paul and I, and I remember feeling very, you know, very lonely and intimidated by the multi-millionaires walking around with their offices lined with, you know, the yellow bits of wood. So until you do, until you win a prize, you, you know, I don't know. And we, and weirdly, the, the first year we were there, this is completely freakish occurrence, but we were the only people who got in the book. So there were, wow. there was a, uh, there was a surprising dip. I mean, I think it must be the only time it happened, but there was a. Um, I have no idea why. I think people felt for one year, weirdly, they decided they weren't going to vote for any of the which things. Year, which that year we was did that? All the time. Oh, God, I suppose it would be, um, you, yeah, you'll go check it out now. No, but, I, uh, <laughs> I suppose it would be 92, maybe. Oh, anyway, okay. first year we were there, maybe maybe I have exaggerated to make a point, but we got the agency got very little in the book and we were amongst the, those that did. And uh, that made me feel um, that I could maybe be allowed to stick around, maybe. And the next year we won a, you know, won a pencil and, and we went on a bit of a run. Um, and that was just, again, you know, if, you, if you're interested in why, um, what made him great, uh, you haven't got enough, you know, we could talk for hours. But that year he got us all in the, um, in the boardroom and said, I'm, you know, I'm worried that our work doesn't look modern enough. Interesting. Right? And he did it. 
in front of Ron. I think Ron, greatest art director ever, you know, um, uh, and I presume, I hope that he asked his permission to explain what he meant, but he was not content with being the best ever. Yeah. You know, he wanted to be the best always. And we, and we all got a bit of a, you know, a bit of a telling off, uh, particularly the art directors. And actually, if you look back now at the, at the work, you can see that moment where suddenly, you know, suddenly we started to do great TV. We, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but you as well with your uh, with your slow motion crash and the you know yeah yeah one or two one or two yeah, long things in there yeah. um, but we as an agency suddenly it was like the um, like the uh, what is it after the Cambrian extinction there's suddenly a bit where there's zillions of little new things are born uh, made in the world and he did that you know he stood up and said we're not good enough um, he didn't shout or throw cups of tea or the hairdryer or anybody just it was an observation he said it like this so he dipped down his <laughs> you know his bangs and said it to the table so nobody felt that they were particularly being accused he was incredibly considerate of ron i mean ron you know continued to do classically brilliant and wonderful work but to the rest of us he said you know do better it's not a bad instruction is it? you know i wanted him to live forever i still want him to live forever you know yeah. fuck all that fuck death Yes. Um, I assumed that he would work into his 90s, mm. you know, and so I did get, I got off of the deputy grape directors uh, job at BMP and I felt a bit bad about it because it got offered to me and not Paul and I, you know, was, um, I think Paul was amazing and it was a big, big part of my own uh, ability to do some good things. So I sort of turned that down, but here's, here's a hot tip for the kids, you know, it's... Never waste an offer. Yes. Right? If somebody if somebody offers you Let a job, it be known. money, yeah. you should at, at least mention it. <laughs> of course. Um, What's it worth? Otherwise? So I I mentioned it to David, and he just said, "Well, why don't you do that here?" Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Then. Well, it's it's very nice to talk to you about it because of course yeah. you would understand. So wow. I'm so sorry that I wasn't able to be more of a David Habit for you. No, you, you came pretty <laughs> close. He, <laughs> he said that to me and, you know, I mean, I was just completely flabbergasted, instantly panicked, but just, just about managed to say, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there we go. Because there was, so, was, was so, there a deputy before then, really? Was, was it just an no, informal thing? it wasn't thing? even a thing. I mean, you know, I think that um, uh, Tony Cox made it up for some reasons <laughs> trying to get me to go over there. Uh no, there wasn't because there was no need. I mean, the, yeah. the very idea that he would stop doing it was a complete anathema to everybody, including me. This is Mary Weir, a senior creative who was hired by David about 93, 94 and remained as a senior creative in the Avenue Vickers Creative Department until David's retirement in 98. In fact, she stayed longer, but um, her connection with David goes all the way up to the time he left the agency. I think it was more to do with the layout of the building. Uh, for, so the, there were two floors of creative, the top, very top, and, and the one below. And the kind of um, the grand dams, those sort of uh, avuncular older types of Richard um, Foster and uh, and the, the life, the lifers, you know, were, were on, on the top. And they were doing great stuff, but they were the original people, his sort of era were on the top floor and we were down with um, next door to Tom and Walter, um, Nick Bell and Greg Martin, um, it would have been Peter and 
Oh, actually, no, I think Peter and Paul, Peter Suter was probably on the top floor. But so we were down with a sort of younger group and a bit more, a bit, they were the sort of blow-ins, you know, they'd come from BBDO or they were new, in, uh, you know, uh, Pat Doherty was there with um, uh, Kiki Kendrick. So that we were, uh, uh, we sort of, because we were all grouped together on that floor and I think we had sort of some TV production and the art buyers and stuff, we just felt a little bit more free and a bit more uh, we didn't sort of you didn't come into that kind of library atmosphere of thinking they they've been together for a long time because people had stayed there for many 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 years you know life lifers they were uh and they'd gone from it being a new agency to being past bbdo and i think that that could sometimes you go in especially when you're sort of quite senior you go in and you feel you know are you going to disrupt the culture or are you going to be absorbed in it are you coming home or are you going to be the outsider? And there was not that feeling because we were on a different floor that it felt like we could be quite anarchic and different. And I think that was deliberate. Um, uh, it's his, I mean, David was very subtle in, in the way he managed you. You know, he was not um, going to, you know, I, I've worked for some very volatile people <laughs> and I still do. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't mind that. I quite like people who are blunt and, and say what they mean. But David was much more subtle than that. And so you picked up messages in different ways. And I felt that the way he, where he put us, said, do your thing, do your thing. And mm. just check in with me and I'll tell you, you know, and he was very much like you get you get your own brief. You don't work competitively, not even on things like The Economist. We swapped the, the, the Economist brief around. You don't work competitively. And we'd come from GGT and even a Saatchi background, which was highly competitive and, you know, very much a land grab sort of thing. So this was, I suppose, just treating us differently. And he knew he was treating us differently. Um, and and I think that automatically has an effect on your work and how you think and behave generally, really. Absolutely. Yeah, I went through the same thing myself. I, I come from YNR where they didn't have many briefs. So each one went to several teams. And when I arrived at AMV, one team, one brief, I was just, I couldn't believe it um, in, in a good way. Um, so uh, working into him, though, showing him work, that kind of stuff, what, what was that like? Um, it was absolutely fine. I mean, I, I can only, he, he, I, I only remember him uh, turning down one thing we did so because you tend to remember um you know either your great triumphs or your great failures i suppose and it was always a very comfortable experience showing him work uh he, he was not um somebody to jump out i mean like paul arden would jump out of the chair and shout and throw things in the air and go this is brilliant or no this is terrible he was not that sort of person <laughs> you know you got the same you would get a sort of nod along you know it, i mean you remember it it was a very comfortable experience i don't remember it being an uncomfortable experience or, a, or or something where you didn't know you had to go we did one campaign for bisto gravy whereby we had animals talking uh in sort of like a fast show kind of Roly Birkin sort of way and it was about making animal making your food more interesting and he said I, I don't like the idea of my food talking really <laughs> it was right of course <laughs> terrible idea although of course Kentucky Fried Chicken we're quite happy to show a chicken later on but 
at that time. Awful idea. Um, uh, and, you know, he sort of got, prodded us away from that into a different direction. Uh, but I think what I remember most is that when we did do something that was different or a bit daring or a bit difficult to buy, and he believed in it, and we did something for Pizza Hut that eventually got knocked out by the Americans, but nearly got made, which was using George Wendt from Cheers, you know, a fat guy selling pizzas, uh, a comedy sort of, uh, you know, dialogue sort of thing. And he fought so hard for that, you know, and he got Michael Bulk involved and he did research and he, you know, he fought to make that campaign happen. And we were in production. We had everything going. And then the Americans saw it and went, there's no way. I can't remember who was in charge of PepsiCo America then. But he said, there's no way we're having a fat guy selling a pizza. And that was it. The whole thing was closed down. Um, but And what he did next was uh, we were sort of sitting in the office slightly shocked because we were just about to go off to L.A. to shoot this huge campaign. And suddenly we were. And uh, he, David, who, as you know, didn't always come into the office that often, into our offices, um, came in with the client, with the English client, uh, who came and apologised to us uh, oh. on behalf of his boss and uh, and said how much he liked the work and how he would have run it. Um, and we were sort of stunned, really. And, and, and imagine that ever happening now, you know, a, a client apologising to the agency for effectively embarrassing him by <laughs> putting him in a position where he had bought work that his bosses in America didn't like. Um but that was the kind of nature of he was uh, of David that a he could get people to do that and b that felt like the right thing to do. <laughs> Respectful, I guess, is his uh, watchword. This is Dave Dye, who joined just before or around the time David retired. So they only really crossed paths professionally in an A and V capacity, very tangentially. But then um, David worked for Dave or they worked on a pitch together for one of Dave's subsequent agencies in the early 2000s. The day I started at Abbott Mead, um, I didn't think I'd met him before then, uh, and in retrospect I was sort of not really aware that I was replacing Ron um, and obviously Ron was David's handpicked head of art from virtually when they started and had been there 20 years or something. And I didn't really think about that. Obviously now I'd be incredibly aware of the sensitivity and stuff around that. Um, so the first time I met him was kind of, he was, he was seemingly, I've talked to Richard, I did talk to Richard Foster about this because it was so out of character, it seems for him, which is, there was an issue because we'd come from BMP to Abbott Me, both Omnicom agencies. There was a bit of an internal fight that they'd broken some sort of gentleman's agreement. So we, while that was being debated, we had to work out of Soho House, uh, which was pleasant, you know. So it's just mm. me and Sean at the top of Soho House for about a month. And we had a lovely brief, which was the um, Royal Academy of Art uh, exhibition, was the first brief we got. And we were coming in to present Tony Cox, an idea that was all based around, so probably a load of my scribbles, all based around, because there were so many artists that come to the agency, because they normally they would just slap up a picture of a, uh, 
a piece of you know whoever the Suzanne's work if it was about Suzanne and then put Suzanne and the date and chopped on there was like all different artists from the turn of the last century or the last, one before last century now. um anyway so we'd come up with this theme that was as if it was who was the best it's like a kid's sort of, sort of thing a six-year-old would do in a way who's you think was loads of art who's the best they're all fighting over who's the best in this particular year 1900 so we come up with this theme like a boxing match and it would be Claude show me the Monet versus you know someone else with a boxing nickname and done like boxing posters so I'd taken it into Tony and David Abbott come in uh, now obviously all I'd heard is he doesn't get involved in people's work he <laughs> trusts people he's like well you know he hires, hires senior people and whatever whatever so uh so Tony said oh uh, David look at this that the guys have done because uh, I think the brief had come through David, he had some connection with the Royal Academy. Uh, and he looked all concerned and he said something like, mm, it might might work, it might work, it might need a bit of help. I think I could help you make it work, I don't know if I've got time. Um, so, oh God, well, I, that's not the guy I've heard about. <laughs> uh, but the, yeah, the implication was, there's something there, it's going to need, you're going to really need some help to turn it into something. I could do it and I don't know if I've got time. So I was like really thrown that I thought, there's nothing like I've heard of this guy. So uh, he said, let me have a think about it. And he wasn't, very, it wasn't particularly very friendly either. Um, so it kind of threw me. I think it was like, literally, I don't think we'd even started. We just popped in with some work. I thought, God, he's nothing like I imagined, and I think in retrospect, he was probably a bit irritated that, you know, that I was replacing Ron or that something, I don't really know, or perhaps I should have etiquette-wise phoned here. I don't really know, but I, I can only imagine, I don't think it was particularly the work. I think, I think, I don't know, maybe there was something else going on. But anyway, that, so that was my first, and he never got back to us with these suggestions. So, <laughs> the end turned uh, out really well anyway so um you know we made it yeah i mean it's but is it but it, as i say i mentioned it to richard because and he was like well it doesn't sound like him so i don't really know what happened i'm guessing that it could have been this it could have been that. i don't know but it certainly seems very out of character so i don't know what we'd done if anything he might have been having a bad day but yeah so that was the first time and just to be clear he knew he knew who you were as in you were the new hires who were going to be replacing Right. He did, but he wasn't very friendly. Okay. He wasn't like, hey, you know, welcome. But he was, he was a bit, yeah, but it's not irritable, irritated. As I say, who knows what was going on in the rest of his life. But that was, yeah, that was the first time, which everyone else you talk to gives you an amazing, charming, lovely experience. <laughs> so things would come up where, for example, when I was uh, looking after The Economist, Sean and I did a campaign where there would be one object repeated three times and it would have different and it would say more than more than just economics i think it said and it would have like an apple and it would say farming and then the same apple underneath and it would say new york and then the same apple underneath and it would say something else some science basically or something so it's the same object with three different things and it's sort of saying more than usual anyway we did a bunch of these the best one showed a FC UK label 
and it said fashion and then the next one said advertising and then the next one said something like well i can't remember but maybe social breakdown it wasn't that but it was like something to do with the controversy around and that was the best one because it was quite spiky and whatever but of course he david abbott just come out and got into a big argument with trevor Beatty, saying that that shouldn't be shown to the kids and it's sort of degrading and blah 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 so then i thought oh god what do you do that's the best of the the five or so ads that we had that seemed like the you know sort of topical it was a bit spiky i thought i'll have to ask him i can't that's his his campaign i can't it's a real slap in the face to use his own campaign <laughs> and then have fc uk in it yeah. but we're yeah. not saying it's good or it's bad we're just sort of you know so you could talk yourself into it so i thought mm. we'll have to ask him so i emailed him and said look you know we've done these ads there's this one obviously you're sort of on record of having this the arguments for this the arguments against that we feel you know ultimately it probably it could feel awkward if you know you're sort of criticizing in the next week campaign um the economist coming out with the, in one of their ads and he essentially said something like, well, it's it's very sweet of you to ask, but um, I, I'm, it's your you know, it's your decision, you know, it's, I'm no longer there. Uh, I really appreciate you asking, but it's not something I should decide. So in the end, you think, oh, fuck it, we'll have to pull it on my room. So yeah. we did, yeah, so we pulled it. Um, and then, yeah, and I'd have occasionally dealings like that, you know, little emails and bits and pieces where he's always very nice and stuff. Um, and then, of course, when we set up CDD, Peter uh, Peter Mead was, I don't know, he was officially a chairman, he was a sort of like chairman. Um, so there would be, so we would get stuff coming backwards and forwards. Uh, and we got very positive stuff from David, you know, he, he said, tell the boys, I think the, the, Mercedes, the first year's Mercedes print work is stellar or something like that. And you think, well, that's good. Nice. Didn't win any awards, but he was very, and he would say, you know, nice things through Peter about different bits of work and different things. He was very, he was sort of, you would hear good things back. Um, so I suppose partly that, that positive stuff led me to sort of ask him to do, you know, if it had come off the back of the Royal Academy, I wouldn't have been bold enough to say, <laughs> have you still got your copyright and pen do you want to so yeah 